Coming up on this week's show, how to never lose a retro file again. Played a Resident Evil text adventure. And we chat with Bruce Shelley about Railroad Tycoon, Civilization, and Age of Empires. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each and every weekend with our good mates at Bitmap Books. Now, you may have heard that the Commodore 64 celebrated its 40th birthday recently. And one of their books you need to check out reprints are due next month of Commodore 64, a visual compendium. Discover the massive library of games that made the Commodore 64 into the most popular home computer of the 1980s. Check that out and the rest of their retro gaming books at bitmapbooks.com. And with our amazing friends at PCBWay. Now, they offer a fully featured custom PCB prototype service with low-cost, fast turnaround quality boards. And they offer additional services, including 3D printing, injection molding, and they're massive supporters of the retro community. So you can get an instant quote for your project right now at PCBWay.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 349, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And fantastic to have you joining us for another hour-ish of completely nerding out about all things retro, reminiscing about the golden age of video games, and of course, bringing you up to speed on all the happenings in the world of retro from over the last seven days. And uh, hopefully Ravi and I are not sounding uh, too hoarse this week after a rather eventful weekend in Germany, where we're out there for Amiga 37, that I've got to say, I think was the best retro show. And I know there's some serious competition I've been to so many incredible shows, but this was definitely up there, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was. It was a really good event. I think there was around, oh, over a thousand people, definitely, and um, there were some pretty cool announcements as well. So, um, Amiga announced that they're actually going to be working with Evercade to bring some uh, Amiga titles to the Evercade. So that's probably going to be a story that will be coming up in the next few weeks. Um, so, mm. yeah, it was. It was a really awesome event. I did a bit of DJing. Uh, Dan had his back. Uh, his cap on backwards and looked like Bart Simpson <laughs> uh, was dancing around. <laughs> yeah, it was really good fun. Dan was being tubular. <laughs> it was, it was, because um, during the day, I mean, I only went on the Saturday, um, but we uh, we went out on the Friday night for a bit. It was reasonably sensible, think home for about 1am. And obviously with the time difference, you know, that's like midnight, midnight UK time. We kept telling ourselves that. Uh, then Saturday went to the show. Uh, the thing is, I only brought hand luggage and I packed it pretty much right to the top intentionally because I thought, well, if, if I do that, I can't spend too much money. Mm-hmm. So I did only buy a couple of things at the show. Now, there's a game, I don't know if you're familiar with it, Joe, Frontier Elite 2. Uh, I've heard of it, yeah. That was the one you now, tried a- to play, Joe. I've tried uh, to play I got really it. confused at, yeah. You were playing Elite. Was that? Yeah, you, you played the original, I think, didn't you, when we did the, uh, oh, the, the game suggestions yeah, on our yeah, I didn't. Podcast. I didn't. Um, <laughs> I don't think I reviewed that one in the end, though, did I? Because I couldn't even, like, start the game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's been my experience with it as well, because I had a demo of, um, of the game back in the day, and I've always wanted to know how to play it. And there mm. are YouTube playthroughs and stuff like that, but I've, I've always thought, well, you know, 30 years I've been saying this now, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to actually learn how to play this game, So I've heard it's incredible, it looks really good, and I saw a box copy of it, at the Amiga show, manual included, star charts and everything, 20 euros. You need that so manual, thought, right, okay. definitely. <laughs> you do. You need, I that's need why I thought I've got the manual next to me. <laughs> I can sit down at my Amiga 1200, you know, cup of tea, get the manual open. I can finally, after 30 years, learn how to play Frontier Elite 2. 
Only thing is, eventually realised when I left the show, the manual was in there, but of course, the manual was in German. <laughs> nice, good move, Dan. Didn't think about that one, did you? Yeah. Nope. So I've got, I think I'm going to have to learn German now. Yeah. Before I can play Frontier what? Elite 2. So I've got about 30 years maybe to learn German. Okay, well what, what's to, the uh, reason for you learning like German with like a private tutor and you're like, so I can play Elite? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I didn't get many pickups over the weekend, but that was one. I mean, it looks nice in the box anyway. Uh, then ended up here at Ravi's DJ gig in a club where there's a load of Amiga nerds all together, literally taking over a proper underground nightclub. There was Ravi and Hoffman on the decks uh, till about 3 a.m. And then um, I sat with a an Amiga engineer, Dave Haney, in a bar over the road till about five o'clock in the morning on uh, on Sunday. So in all, brilliant weekend. Still slightly feeling it now on Wednesday, but um, it was definitely worth it. So uh, if you're out there over the weekend, we did bump into loads of listeners and uh, YouTube viewers as well. So it was fantastic to meet you there. Roll on next year. But of course, it is business as usual on the podcast this week. And we do have another legendary guest to bring you on the show in just a bit. And uh, this week, you are in your element here, Ravi. Oh, yes. This is uh, Bruce Shelley. Now, Bruce was named by PC Gamer magazine as one of the 25 gamer gods. So, you know, um, PC gaming, Bruce is just absolutely amazing. He basically started um, with Avalon Hill. And uh, that was a company that started, you know, board games and turning board games into video games. So that kind of crossover from board game to video game really happened with uh, games like Railroad Tycoon as well, which was a one of Bruce's first titles and you know how big that series is nowadays. And then mm. he went on to work with a uh, Sid Meier on um, a small game called civilization. <laughs> never heard of that one. Never wee, heard of that wee. one. <laughs> <laughs> that, that got like worldwide fame. Absolutely amazing one. Then he kind of, he kind of went out of the video games industry, started making a uh, strategy books about games, but then entered with a tour de force. That was age of the Empires series, which is, very like civilization, but in real time. So, you know, um, civilization is a kind of turn-based I, game. I grew up on Age of Empires. Like, I absolutely adored it. It was like the only game we had on our PC. Um, and I absolutely loved Age of Empires 1 and 2. So, absolutely loving this one. Oh, it's a great game. And, you know, Microsoft took that on. And that was one of the titles that actually kind of led people to believe, you know, oh, Microsoft are, are quite good at gaming and stuff. And it really, like... <laughs> Bought their uh, PC division into into mm. good repute. So having Bruce on is just something I've wanted to have since the start of the podcast. And like you know, my kind of strategy uh, senses are tingling in this one, definitely. <laughs> yeah, this is an absolutely huge interview. So make sure you hang around for that. Bruce Shelley, our special guest, he'll be on the show in around half an hour from now. But of course, before we do that, we always like to bring you up to speed and have a bit of a chat about what's been happening in the world of retro gaming and technology from over the last week. You know, you've been on this um, a bit of a tip recently, Joe, of kind of playing retro titles in modern tech. Yeah. You know, we're talking about how you've been playing kind of uh, retro games in, in virtual reality on your Oculus and stuff like that. What about this for something that goes completely the other way? And I've got to give a shout to Ash, who linked us this story in our Discord. It is literally just a, a tweet at the moment. Actually, I think it was posted on the Facebook group that someone... This is Mark Watson is actually making a text adventure version, a text only game of Resident Evil 1. <laughs> yeah, you you guys have forwarded this over to me to give it a bash. I really, really, really want to be really arrogant and just be like, yeah, I'll complete this in five minutes. Because um, <laughs> I know everything about Resident Evil, I would claim. 
But yeah, I do not know everything about text adventure games. So I might get stuck in the first room. Um, but I am really excited to sign up for this one um, and give it a try. This looks very unique. And as you say, kind of the opposite to what I've been doing recently. But obviously Resident Evil, my favourite game series of all time. So I'm pretty excited to give this a try and kind of let you know, let you guys know how I got on taking it really old school. Would that be your first kind of text adventure experience, Joe? Um, I've I've screwed around on them, you know, as a kid, like on a friend's dad's PC when he's gone, try this out. And we've literally like, you wake up in a bed and we're like, get up. And it's just like, error. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, you have to write wake up instead. Yeah. So, and then there was, um, is it Black Ops 1? Call of Duty Black Ops 1 had a hidden game in it. Um, on the start menu, you're like tied to a chair. Yeah. And if you, it was it the triggers, if you press the triggers over and over again, you would break out the chair and you could move around the room. And it was, um, I forget the name of the game, but it was on the on the computer terminal. And I remember screwing around on that and, and getting like maybe three or four answers into the game before it was just like error kind of thing. Um, so this yeah, wasn't it re- Zork, I think. Was Zork, in there, wasn't that's it. it. I think, yeah, yeah, Zork. I wasn't yeah. to say Zool, but I was like, it's not Zool. It's not Chubba Jumps. It's not Gremlins. Um, so yeah, um, hopefully, I, I'll have the credentials to become a tester for this. Um, so I'm going to be signing up to that tonight, and hopefully, I can let everybody know how I got on with it. I can, I can just imagine Zool the text adventure. It's just like collect sweet, collect cake. <laughs> yeah, Chubba Jump, Chubba Jump. So at the moment, he's only looking for a couple of uh, game testers by the sounds of it. But um, he said, knowledge of the original game not needed. But you can email him at mark at dinkylittlewebsites.co.uk. I'll uh, put a link to the original post in our show notes as well. So um, if you found a Resident Evil 1, uh, you want to play the text adventure version of it, this looks really interesting. So um, you can read more about that in our show notes. Now, while we're speaking of uh, games that have kind of been changed and running on different platforms and been reinterpreted, were you a fan of Perfect Dark, Joe? I imagine, you know, you loved GoldenEye 007. Were you into the kind of spiritual successor to it? Yeah, I I, I didn't have Perfect Dark, um, so I didn't play it until much later on when it actually came out on the the Rare Replay collection, yeah. um, where you got Perfect Dark rather than GoldenEye, famously. Um, but I a lot of my friends had Perfect Dark and really, really enjoyed it. They all, you know, screamed and shouted about it, about it being like the successor to GoldenEye and you know, some would say better than GoldenEye because it it did everything GoldenEye did, but but more. You know, it used the same game engine, but there was more guns, there was more sci-fi to it, there was more levels, so it was more of the same. So I, I always enjoyed it when I played it. But yeah, this is quite interesting. So it's been decompiled, hasn't it? So somebody's ripped it apart. Uh, they've kind of uh, they've kind of reverse engineered it. So yeah. this is uh, it's kind of like a legal route around it, but. Um, as we've seen from previous reverse engineered projects, it can add to some like kind of, you know, put them in a in a bad situation. So the last reverse engineered program was um, the one that was a GTA, mm. and um, that you know seemed fully legal because they're not using any of the code. They've they've kind of reverse engineered it themselves and they've rebuilt the game. But then Take Two Interactive um, took them to court. And uh, that's been removed all traces of it off the internet. So this is a, a kind of interesting world of the uh, reverse engineered game. It's got none of the original assets. It's got none of the original stuff. But, uh, you know, it still might be something that the games companies don't like, especially uh, Nintendo as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if this would 
like obviously it was on the Nintendo 64 and it is the NTSC versions of the N64 games they've decompiled. Obviously rare now, it was a rare property that now is owned by Microsoft. So I don't know who yeah. would, if it would be the house of Nintendo or Microsoft who might come after the guy who's done this. Um, but it's cool. So the guy who's done this, um, like you say, he's completely reverse engineered. It says it's been reverse engineered down to 97%, uh, but it's more of a technicality because of there's some reused assets and reused codings in there. And, you know, this, the, the system he's done it on doesn't quite understand that they're separate codes or separate assets. So it says it's 97%. But the reason this is exciting is, you know, we could just go, oh, somebody's decompiled the game. But as you say, Ravi, about GTA, and also famously they did it with uh, Super Mario 64 and Zelda Ocarina of Time, this means these games can now be ported to PC, which were never were ported before. They were only on the N64 or on compilations. Mm. And that allows, as Ravi says, for them to get the original assets and make them high res, you know, change them, make them better, make them worse or whatever. Play around, completely play around with the game and essentially mod and port it to PC. And obviously, as you say, Dan, it was it was a famous game, a well-loved game. So it kind of opens up that world of opportunity for people to have a play around with it, obviously, unless it gets shut down. Obviously, a lot of these people, a lot of these things end up in certain areas of the internet and stuff like that for people to get a hold of. So I think it's only going to be a matter of time before we're going to start seeing some, or we're going to start reporting on, you know, like super HD mods of Perfect Dark or, you know, like um, perfect ports of the game and stuff like that. And it just opens up that world. I think they've been really clever with this as well because it is technically legal because he hasn't used any original assets. Yeah. He's uh, pretty much decompiled it, looked at it, recreated it with his own code. Yeah, that um, was the uh, I know at- same with GTA as well. Mm. They, they had yeah, to, right, you had to use an original <laughs> copy to um, yeah. kind of add those certain things in there. But um, I mean, to be fair, if Microsoft's lawyers came to me and I had a fan project, I probably wouldn't challenge it. I'd be like, yeah, I'm saying. Yeah, I think it's yeah. more like <laughs> they've got the bigger clout in that kind of thing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so, uh, legally it's probably on your side, but, um, you know, they'll it, just yeah. take you it, down. <laughs> It begs that question of, you know, we're here covering it, Nintendo Life have covered it, VGC have covered it. It begs that question, do these people actually want it covering and blowing up like that? Yeah. <laughs> but I guess Why are you they, talking about it, you buggers? It's yeah, but I guess they wouldn't put it out there. You know, they wouldn't put it on the forums. They wouldn't put it, you know, on the pages and stuff like that if they didn't want people to go and have a look at it. Well, what I think is, play it. what I think is someone needs to do this with a lot of money and then there'll be a landmark case where they kind of win it and then they go, okay, reverse engineering's all right. And then, and then you know, yeah. they can go, in the case of blah, 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 versus blah, 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 this happened and it set a precedent. <laughs> that, yeah, that, and then that everybody just it. starts yeah. doing it, don't they? Exactly, yeah. Well, there's that thing, isn't there, that famously the, the Barbara Streisand effect, where the more you try and get something taken off the internet, the farther it spreads. So um, there's always ways to find them, even if they get taken down. Uh, but it is very cool. And I think just opening up games like that that were limited to one platform and giving you an enhanced experience, I think, is really cool. Um, so, um, yeah, if you ever want to play Perfect Dark and didn't have an N64, it uh, could be a good way to uh, play it on your PC, upscaled. Now, this next story, I've got to say, when I read this headline... This just sounds like something out of science fiction. And I still don't quite understand how this is possible, but this is a video that is apparently showing brain cells in a Petri dish playing Pong. This is fascinating and also a little bit terrifying for me 
Um, I'm hoping, you know, Dr. Ravi might be able to speculate on it a little bit more and clear a few things up for me because I'm... Our resident biologist. Our resident biologist. No, because Ravi's a smart one. Um, but yeah, so this, the story goes, it's an incredible video showing brain cells in a Petri dish learning to play Pong. And there's a video of them playing Pong against the wall. And then there's a video of the brain cells playing Pong against each other, which is just absolutely mind-blowing. So essentially, these are living brain cells that they're using in a Petri dish. And they're using to try and simplify it and get my head around it. And I don't want to butcher this or get it wrong. So hopefully, if I do get it wrong, Ravi can correct me or maybe even yourself. Oh God, how come I'm but the expert? <laughs> you are the expert, Dan. You're the, Ravi, you're the smart one. But they're using electrical feedback signals to essentially control the paddles on the game. And they've taught them using electricity, you know, electrical signals on how the game works. And it's all kind of linked, but separate to what Elon Musk was doing with the, um, you know, the Neuralink a couple of years ago with yeah. the monkey brain playing Pong with its brain, uh, with its mind. And it's it's all to do with electric electrical signals, you know, from the brain. Because obviously the brain, I say obviously, but the brain works in electrical signals. So it's all electrical signals controlling it. But essentially the experiment kind of started out um, just to see if the brain cells were alive. And once they realized that they were alive, and this is a biotech startup, Cortical Labs, they're doing that. And, the, and it's the chief science, scientific officer, uh, Brian Kagan, who's kind of released the video. And essentially what they're saying is once they realized they were, it was alive, they wanted to teach it simple kind of like, not logical, but like simple things for it to do. And Pong, teaching it to play a game and Pong being like, you know, one of the first ever games seemed like the logical thing for it to do to see if it'd be able to understand it. And it seems like it's done it pretty quick, but it's just scary because it's just like they're human brain cells. They're, they're human brain well, cells. Well, reading this report, even they were shocked by it. Yeah. Which is well, remarkable. Well, yeah, they, they're, they're kind of created that. You were totally right, Joe, they're, they're, but they're not like taken from a human. No. <laughs> um, they yeah. have been kind of created in the way that like, stem cells are done. And I think yeah, yeah. this is this is interesting, obviously, totally right about the electrical signals and stuff like that. And uh, that would be able to teach it. But this also plays into like kind of, you know, stem cells are pretty controversial and like, are you playing God here? And um, so was Elon Musk's kind of project as well. It's It's interesting to see that video games seem to be the one logical thing. Um, yeah. that they're testing a lot of these on. like They're testing AI and DeepMind and all of the kind of, you know, the basic stuff is a, a basic video game. And I guess it makes yeah. sense with like electricity and yeah. uh, stuff like that. But um, yeah, I think, I think it's interesting. It's uh, I, I still don't quite understand it. And uh, I guess <laughs> it could help people, you know, if, if you could teach basic functions to these things you know uh to, to react in a certain way to like the electrical signals in the brain you could probably help recover people with brain injuries in the future um, yeah and get and other think... parts of the body working with other parts that haven't worked uh previously or through an accident or, or birth yeah. or something like that it's it's interesting but then also it's uh it's really controversial as well kind of yeah. doing this stuff uh, a yeah, lot of issues yeah. with this yeah yeah, absolutely. And, you know, like you say, it's why is the research there and there's the controversy behind it and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, watching the video, the first kind of like 10, 20 seconds of it, you're like, 
is it actually like okay yeah it's controlling it but does it actually know what it's doing and isn't it just is it just a fluke that the ball hit where the paddle was down at the bottom but the longer you watch it it is obviously it's logically trying to it is moving to get the ball and it doesn't miss the ball it it, it figures out what it's doing they, and they've play, playfully named it um brain dish dish uh, brain dish brain it's called um, so they have named it dish brain <laughs> and you know they're saying like this is going to really really like fast track this kind of like research and technology and stuff like that but that's why i say it's scary it's kind of like like you say it's that playing guard where do they go next kind of thing i I just find the whole element of retro gaming really interesting like you know pong being like the basic simplest kind of one that it can do like what are we gonna get tetris next or yeah yeah you know you know kind of complex shapes and stuff like that and 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 you know these kind of like you know video games are they going to be leading in like scientific and medical kind of um you know discoveries (laughs) It's, it's pretty amazing really uh, I didn't think yeah. we'd be covering something like this in the news, to be honest. I mean, wow, you know, good story, guys. I love the fact that their next thing they're going to try with it is um, they're apparently going to try and teach it to play Pong while intoxicated to let them <laughs> deeply observe the actions of brain cells when inebriated. Oh. So we're either going to get it drunk. I thought you were going to say Pong. they're going to try and get it to play Space Invaders or something. <laughs> <laughs> like, for me, that but was I'm looking at this, logical... and I don't know about you guys, but I always play Grand Theft Auto a little bit better after a couple of pints. So it will be interesting to see. Yeah, maybe, maybe in a yeah. year's time we'll be like, well, it's playing GTA now. <laughs> like, you you, you think you play it better but, after a few pints. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, don't know, I don't know if there's any truth behind this, but they're claiming this is the first time scientists have observed something that quite qualifies as intelligence outside of viewing complete living beings um mm. i don't know how big of a statement that is i am far from a scientist i'm a, I'm a guy on a podcast so we'll see where this goes well i for one welcome my new uh dish brain overlords so, <laughs> if you wanted to see the video they'll I'll probably beat you at pong <laughs> yeah it'll be me at pong <laughs> look at well. it, it play, plays better than me after a couple of drinks i give it that <laughs> so uh, yeah i'll put that video if you want to check it out very very interesting um you'll find that in our show notes in your podcast app or at the retrohour.com now speaking of really interesting things one thing that i've always found fascinating is seeing things that we only saw in previews or beta versions of games that never made it into the final release. And this looks really, really impressive, actually, I've got to say. This is some modders who've recreated a Super Mario Sunshine stage from the preview Nintendo showed at Space World 2001. Right. Now, obviously, Super Mario Sunshine, that was, you know, the the big Mario game on the GameCube, wasn't it? Yeah. And if you remember in that game... You had a Delfino Plaza mm-hmm. that was kind of the, the middle of the game where everything kind of linked to and everything like that. But when they um, they give a, a preview of this a year earlier before the game came out, um, I think it was actually the final ever Space World that Nintendo were at 2001. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but there's a completely different version of Delfino Plaza in that. And they were showing some footage on screen but then when the game came out, it looked completely different. There was different NPCs in there as well, different enemies. But it turns out some modders have actually managed to recreate it using a mixture of kind of just watching that footage, but also checking out some of the um, the code that's in the final release of Super Mario Sunshine. Okay. Now, there is a, there is a video that I'll, um, I'll link up in our show notes as well. It's about seven minutes long where they go through everything they've done and, and how they've achieved this. Yeah. But in video games, you know, you have things called um, hype maps. Yeah. 
So these are um, basically code that tells the game how a character interacts with a game, you know, the, the areas it can stand on, that kind of thing. It turns out that the original hype map for the lost Super Mario Sunshine Plaza was still in the final code. Okay. So you know, a couple a, of modders have... A lot of this kind of, you know, a lot of this kind of happens when coders just remove a section or they kind of just hide it within the game. And then you're finding mm. like previous sections in there and stuff. And and sometimes it's found by people doing glitches and stuff like that. And they'll yeah. suddenly go, oh, wow, there's this level or what was this from? And it's like, oh, it's a leftover, you know, bit of map or something. So that's really interesting that they kind of found this map there. Yeah, and it's um, it's one guy who really started this project, a guy called Tempo. And he'd always wanted to play this kind of, you know, lost relic of Mario history. And he went digging through the code and actually kind of started to make it in Blender because they're going to be releasing a Super Mario Sunshine ROM hack, which is called Super Mario Eclipse. So what that's going to have is it's going to be a modified version of the game that will allow the player to time travel between the modern plaza design and also the original one that was in this preview back in 2001 as well. So that's a good way of kind of tying it together. But there's also, I don't know if you've heard of um, an NPC character, I think he's more of an enemy actually, called um, Tramplin' Stew, who right. was deleted from the final version of Super Mario Sunshine. It kind of looks a bit like a, a large toadstool kind of stomping around. But it turned out that the, um, the textures for him and everything were also in the game. So he's managed to restore him and kind of put him back in the plaza like he was in the original preview. Yeah. Back in 2001. So, and you can even defeat him as well by pouring water into his head. <laughs> then he turns into an eye, then you jump on him and he turns into a coin. So there is still more work to be done, but at the moment there is a playable demo that you can download. And there's been a you know, group of guys have got involved in this as well, because Tempo admitted that he wasn't really that good at doing textures. So there's a guy called Yoshi2, there's about five or six other contributors who've all got together to basically make this playable now. And it's going to feature in their upcoming Super Mario Sunshine ROM hack, Super Mario Eclipse. So if you want to check out the work in progress so far, and you can download it to play it as well, that is available now. So I think that's just really cool. Um, the fact that, you know, so many people would have seen that and been excited to play that version. Then when it came out, it was completely different. It's always nice to kind of go back and check out what it would have been like. It always happens yeah. with uh, trade shows and stuff like that, doesn't it? It's like they kind of build the hype up with a, with a level and then they present something it's, totally different and like people were like where, where is that version there's the zelda 64 um space world version as well which is like famous you know it looks when they were saying there's a 3d zelda coming you know before ocarina of time came out and they were showing it off at space world it was just like like you say it was a tech demo of link mm. fighting um fighting ganondorf and that version, you know, never came out. It, it looks different. The textures are all different. You know, the, the, the polygons are different on it and stuff to what we finally got. So, you know, it's always great to see that these like fan recreations or even better when it turns out it's still there in the game. Um, so like you say, this Mario Sunshine one, you know, the mapping was there for it, which was really cool. I really like that they recreated the trailer as well. You know, the footage that was shown off. Not only did yeah. they recreate the plaza so you could run around it and everything, they then created a trailer, you know, the same trailer. And like you say, the textures are slightly different and stuff like that. Um, but it's really cool that they then spent the time to recreate it as well. Yeah, one that I remember was Watch Dogs, um, the oh, notorious yeah. E3 trailer that everyone was trying <laughs> to recreate for ages. And there was an E3 mod that came out later on. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it looked totally different, didn't it? The the original promised version of that. And we got the game, like, what the hell is this? That doesn't look like <laughs> the game we were promised. So, uh, yeah, it is really cool when uh, modders managed to restore these, uh, you know, these promised games that never were. I, d- I did actually love Mario Sunshine. I thought that was, um, wasn't quite the Mario game I think most people were expecting, you know, being set in like a tropical world. Well, I, I enjoyed that game. I'm f- this will make you old, uh, make you feel old. And it made me certainly feel old. I'm fairly certain it was the 20-year anniversary of Mario Sunshine a few weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, I believe yeah. it. Yeah, what, 2002 it came yeah, out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Crazy. So, yeah, that made me feel really old. I was like, oh my God, I was like... <laughs> Very timely then to release this. So uh, yeah, if you want to check it out, I'll put that in our show notes as well. Now we're going to talk about this um, amazing new project um, that lets you search through over 91 million files from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, and uh, another Lost Mario project. This was something that was meant to come out in the Game Boy Advance, a little uh, preview version of what Mario Kart could have been like on that platform. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Before we do, though, just a quick reminder that the reason we can bring you the Retro Hour podcast each and every week is thanks to you, our incredible patrons. We couldn't do it without them, could we? No, we couldn't do it without them, and this is absolutely true, and I don't want us to go all the way back to pre-COVID and stuff like that and tell the story of our Patreon launching everything. But long story short, it absolutely 100% comes down to support from our fans and the fact that people, you know, stick with us every week, every month. It's absolutely incredible and it still blows my mind to this day that people back us and support us. And, you know, as we always say every week, we do like to give something back. Um, in the form of our Patreon rewards, which are, Dan, I'm putting you on the spot now. Oh, we do. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just get the Patreon page up. The tables um, have no, turned. We, the tables have turned. <laughs> Wasn't expecting that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we give back a lot of stuff to our patrons, including, I mean, the normal podcast. We try and get out early when we can. Um, you also get extra content in the patrons-only version of the podcast because we chop all the adverts out and we didn't want to give our patrons a shorter show. So instead we give you at least two extra news stories just for our patrons every week. Like I mentioned, you get it ad-free too. Um, And also, you will get access to our patrons area of Discord where we chat away in there all week. We do something that is just my favourite thing every month as well. Last Sunday of the month, we all get together on Google Meets for our patrons hangout. And if you haven't joined us for one of these before, I mean... How many different topics do we talk about? I mean, if you if you love the kind of stuff we talk about, obviously retro gaming is a big part of it and computing, but it can go off on all kinds of tangents. Yeah, it, it goes off all over the place, talking about horror films, sci-fi, just technology in general, talking about beepers, floppy disks, and just our hobbies and stuff like that. And I always love when we get new people and, you know, they jump on and they show us what retro tech they've recently got or even anything, you know, any of the regulars have brought with them, you know, to show off and stuff like that. And you don't have to come on in and get involved and chat away and stuff like that. You can just come on and stay in the corner and just listen to what we're all talking about. You can get involved. We do our best to try and get people, you know, to make people feel welcome and stuff like that. But I look forward to it every every single month. You know, like you say, it's just nice to crack a beer with your mates, really. Yeah, and I, I love the fact that we just completely nerd out about all kinds of incredible things and see what people are up to as well. And Matthew is one of our um, regulars on there, big supporter of the show, and he was showing us how um, he he actually runs basically a a little pirate TV station in his house where he can broadcast his old consoles to all his TVs. That's a really genius way. Say again? He's got constant Futurama on the go. Yeah, he runs like a pretty much he can watch 
you know, games master and stuff like that by broadcasting it around his house and watch it on his LCRT TVs, which um, I've been trying to do similar using a Chromecast and uh, an HDMI adapter, but I didn't think of doing it that way. So it's really cool just to get these ideas. And if you've got systems and you don't know what they are or you need help, it's a bit like a virtual users group. So we do that at the end of every month. And for our gold members and above, you also get an extra podcast every month as well when we do the retro hour after hours. It covers all kinds of retro gaming stuff. So um, a good time to join us now to get access to all of that. And of course, for joining us on Patreon and helping us keep the lights on and keep this show coming out every Friday, you will get a mention in the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming, and that is the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. And let's give a big welcome to our latest backers. Hall of Fame! <laughs> and let's give a massive thank you to our latest backers. Thank you so much to... Liam Dobson. Gregory G. And Neil Thomas, who all backed us on Patreon over the last week. Your support is hugely appreciated. And if you'd like to join the Retro Hour patrons community, all the details to sign up are on our website right now at theretrohour.com. So our special guest, Bruce Shelley, talking about classics like Railroad Tycoon, Civilization, Age of Empires. He's on the way in the next few minutes. Before that, I mean, this next headline just blew my mind. And I don't know if you find the same, Ravi. You know when you've got massive collections of old CD-ROMs and floppy disks as well? Do you ever find a situation where you think, I know I've got a file somewhere, but which disk is it on? I'm... I'm out of that situation now, Dan. I'm, I'm ashamed to say that I got rid of my big disc collections and uh, CD collections. So this is Shameful. something that I need. Shame on you, Ravi. <laughs> <laughs> I know Dan's sitting there in a huge archive with uh, all of his old PD discs and stuff like that. Well, I got rid of them all, then bought them all back again. That's generally what I do um, with with my stuff. Uh, but this is a new project um, hosted on archive.org, but not actually made by them. Um, this is just um, fans have made this and um, Archive.org have hosted it and it uses their service as well. So Archive.org, it's the biggest data preservation project in the world. And they have 11 terabytes of CD-ROM and floppy archives that is now searchable with a new project called Discmaster. So if you head to this on your web browser, it's um, discmaster.textfiles.com and this is Jason Scott who's hosting it on his website who um, works for archive.org. And also we've had Jason on the podcast before. Yeah. Really interesting guy. He's um, um, And he, he's like really into this, isn't he? You know, he's, archiving he, and preserving stuff. He's totally into it. He he did uh, textfiles.com, which is a BBS archive. It's basically an yeah. archive of like all the BBS systems. And uh, there's there's lots of, lots of mad stuff on there. And this looks like uh, it's got a hell of a lot of mad stuff. But also... What he does with all of his sites, um, textfiles.com was a great example of that, is he makes it so it can work on old browsers. And yeah. um, this site is is minimal. It's got no CSS. It's got none of that fancy modern stuff. and um, No tracking. No tracking, nothing, nothing like that. And the best thing I like about it is he's got browser compatibility and he's got good. And the first browser is Aweb for the Amiga, uh, he's got Netscape Communicator in there as well. <laughs> and he's saying, oh, you know, bad support for like Netscape 1.0 and uh, Mosaic and stuff. So he's really, you know, looking. <laughs> which is fair enough. Yeah, yeah, which is, which is fair enough. But um, he's really thinking this could be something used on old machines that are connected to the internet. And you have the ability to basically search through like thousands of CD-ROMs and, uh, 
you know, hundreds of thousands of images and files and all sorts of stuff. There's going to be like music in there. There'll be crazy samples. I'm sure there'll be like maps and levels for games. Um, there's also a few X-rated things in there, of course. Um, there are a, a lot of X-rated things in there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <But> <laughs> not that I've been searching it down. <laughs> randomly came across a few. Yeah, and um, yeah, there's, it's just a full collection of that kind of time period. Like I was just looking for it now, and there's like 17-bit software on there. There's all mm. all these kind of PD houses and stuff like that. So uh, this is uh, an absolutely amazing program. Uh, uh, well, website, and if you had this and you had like frogfind.com as well and 68k news, you're in absolute heaven because you can, you know, get the latest news, search on Google, and also like, you know, download some old mad stuff. And they've even, I mean, yeah, there's stuff on there from, you know, old CD ROM collections, a lot of um, public domain shareware. I mean, a lot of people are actually commenting who've uh, found things that they might have had on a, a CD ROM, you know, back in the 90s they forgot about or couldn't find. The man should track it down using this. But also they've um, they've done some file conversion as well on the back end. I've noticed that Amiga DMS files, it automatically converts them to ADF. Oh, that's Which sweet. is a format yeah. that, you know, yeah, which generally used on the Amiga for disk imaging now. Um, you can search for like, you know, MIDI music files or Amiga mods and they'll play directly in your web browser today without any extra tools. So it's converting them on the fly as well. So there's even stuff like old fonts are found on here as well, or music software. A lot of user-generated data, and um, they're updating this every day at the moment. So I tried it a bit earlier on. The search, search engine function of it was pretty slow, but they're doing a lot of back-end stuff to make that quicker. And um, apparently it's already analysed around 7,000 CD-ROMs, and they're looking to do another 8,000 very soon as well. So it just seems like a really simple way. And, you know, when they've eventually finished this project, it'll really be a way to, I imagine, kind of search every release of, you know, these compilations and utility discs and that from back in the day, like over 30 years of software and yeah. collections. Maybe, which, um, maybe they'll have native vibrant. programs, like, so you could somehow connect like an FTP and just uh, yeah. mount it or just download it or, you know, get a disk file like that quickly. And uh, that, that could be amazing, you know, having this huge archive just at the uh, click of your fingers. I think, I think it's amazing to do it in the browser already, but uh, just imagine a native app for like... Um, you know, the Amiga or, or something like that. And it was cool because, I mean, the, I used to get all those magazine cover CD-ROMs and stuff like that, and not everything on those was uploaded to the internet, or if it was, a lot of those websites don't exist today. So without services like this, it will be lost forever. Oh, yeah, you know, from that's, that perspective. that's really where archive.org shines. Like, you yeah. know, the Wayback Machine is just beautiful. Text Files is beautiful, and this is just another addition to that whole uh, amazing thing. And, you know, I, I, I just love stuff like this. And it's even got a view counter on there as well. So that's oh, yeah. pretty cool. You know, hit Old school like, tribute like, like there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so at discmaster.textfiles.com, it will work in most of your retro browsers as well. If you want to fire up Netscape on Windows 95 and check it out, I'm sure it'll work. Now we're talking about kind of unreleased Nintendo things. Um, what about this? Now, were you a fan of um, Mario Kart on the the Game Boy back in the day? Was it Super Circuit, the one that came out on the, on the yeah, Game Boy Advance? Yeah, Super Circuit in 2001 for the GBA was mm. like the ultimate game at my school. It was the game everybody got with the GBA. And, uh, you know, it was 
I want to say it was very similar to the Super Nintendo version, but it probably was closer to the N64 version, to be perfectly honest. It was a real... Wasn't it like Mode 7, didn't it? It had those Mode 7 Yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a real kind of like, you know, it was early in the GBA. I think it was one, might have been one of the release games that was very early. It was 2001, but mm. it never got a follow-up. There was Mario Kart 7 for the DS, but it, you know, never got like an, a... It, Super Circuit kind of sits on its own in the Mario Kart series. But I never heard of this game. But this is a um, a failed kind of pitch attempt to Nintendo from a German studio uh, called Daenerys Entertainment Software, um, which has been kind of dug up by the Nintendo preservation website, Forest of Illusion, who we've we've spoke about quite a few times before. <laughs> Pretty much every week. Every week. <laughs> um, Mario Kart Double XL, the tech demo, which is very classic GBA looking, but very different to kind of like traditional Mario Kart, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, there is a a video you can watch, and this is something that it's been known about this. It's kind of been very famous, but no one's been able to play it. And it was actually from um, Manfred Trenz, who was the guy who who made Turrican back in the day, very famous game. And it kind of shows a... um, a dual playfield adjustable view engine yeah. of Mario. He doesn't move, he's very wooden and everything, but yeah. really this was, it was just a demo to Nintendo of kind of their scaling. He actually looks scaling. like a puppet, funny enough that you yeah, say he does he's actually, very wooden. Yeah. Slightly creepy looking actually, yeah. I would say. Um, but he pitches it to Nintendo and it's got quite an interesting history because apparently this started as a racing game called the R3D Demo that was, um, and I think there's some assets from the PlayStation in there as well, a PlayStation game called Moor Hunt Kart, yeah. which um, Denaris also helped develop back in the day too. So really they went to Nintendo, and I imagine this was in 2004, so they were probably pitching this as a successor for um, you know the Game Boy Advance to be the, the next Mario Kart game on there, which um, obviously didn't happen in the end. But now it's finally available. You can play this very short kind of trailer if you go to Forest of Illusion's website, um, it is just a tech demo, but there are some um, interesting things to look at here. Um, so you can go down and kind of read some of the, the the comments that were made on the code by Manfred himself, kind of talking about, you know, the, the game's content, a bit of an expl- explanation as to why he's done certain things and how the final version would work too. And you've really just got one single track. There's just Mario going around. You've got yeah. no enemies or anything like that. There's a lap counter too, but you can't go to the next lap after you cross the finish line. There's coins on there, you can't get them, and you know you, you don't slow down by hitting anything. But it's an interesting look at what could have been, and yeah. you can now actually play this and download it, and um, you'll play it in, in a GBA emulator if you want to see this tech demo. Interestingly, I wouldn't say this game, but the development of this game after it was turned down by Nintendo actually went on to make the Crazy Frog game for the Game Boy Advance. Ding, 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 oh, he's got it ready. He hasn't got any less annoying in 15 years. God, it? I, went, I, went, <laughs> I went to a nightclub. Um, I was in Africa and um, Crazy Frog was like all over Europe and really popular. And um, there was this like reggae dance, which was the Crazy Frog. 
But they all thought it was really cool. And I was in the middle of the club and the whole club was like, bum, 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 bum. And I was just like, <laughs> God, this is hell. What's happening? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so they actually went on to be, yeah, the crazy frog <laughs> racing game actually kind of used some of the the engine that would have been in Mario Kart XXL. What a horrible fate for what could have been a really good Mario Kart game on the GBA. But um, yeah, it's always cool to kind of get a look at, you know, what could have been, isn't it? Like I mentioned before. Yeah. So that is available to play right now. If you want to check it out, I'll link that up. And the rest of the stories, you'll find them all in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, just before we chat to this week's special guest, Bruce Shelley, Let's take a quick moment to give a big thank you to a regular supporter of the Retro Hour podcast, and this is our sponsor, Better Help. Now, we've always talked about, I mean, you know, we talk about the fun side of life, we talk about gaming, which is a bit of escapism, isn't it, from everything that's going on in the world, and we know that a lot of people are going through a tough time at the moment, and we really think that it's important to talk about this stuff as well, because everyone's got things going on, and sometimes it's important to think of solutions, isn't it, you know? How can we get a different mindset? Yeah, 100%. And sometimes, you know, just reaching out to somebody, somebody professional, whether it's over the phone, whether it's just on text, whether it's on text chat, you know, on your phone or on your computer or anything like that, it does an absolute wonder, you know, to actually just kind of open up and talk to somebody about it. And I'm a huge advocate, you know, for mental health awareness and kind of looking after your brain. And sometimes there doesn't have to be an issue there doesn't have to be any sort of diagnosis or anything like that I'm a strong believer in sometimes when we get sick or we get ill or we get poorly that can happen in our mind as well and you know mm. there can be something that affects us or something that isn't affecting us and you're just in a low mood but 100% you've got to reach out and you've got to talk to people about these things because sometimes you just end up focusing on the problem instead of the solution and reaching out for places like better help they can help you through that yeah, and I think you mentioned a really good point there as well, that, you know, when you find a solution, yeah, it's an amazing feeling. And a therapist can help you be a better, better problem solver, making it easy to accomplish your goals, no matter how big or small they are as well. And if you've ever thought of giving therapy a try, um, this is really affordable too. And I think that's been a, a big misconception that therapy is only for, like, you know, the rich and famous and everything. This is so affordable. And... Not only is it affordable, it's very convenient too. You get matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey and you can do this either on a webcam, you can just do it on text, like you mentioned, just audio, and they will connect you to someone too. So you can unload stress, heal your emotions, help with anxiety and depression as well. So if you'd like to be a better problem solver, BetterHelp can get you there. And of course, we've got you a unique code to use so they know that we we have sent you and, and you'll get 10% off your first month as well. So a really good time to give it a try. If you just want to talk to someone and help become a better problem solver, head to this website right now. It's BetterHelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash retro. BetterHelp.com slash retro. And a big thank you to our sponsor, BetterHelp, for their support of our show. Okay, next, time to talk to this week's special guest, getting the inside story on classics like Railroad Tycoon, Civilization, Age of Empires, and lots more with Bruce Shelley. He's next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and we're here today with gaming legend Bruce Shelley. And uh, we're going to talk about Railroad Tycoon, Civilization, and age of the empires which i just absolutely love one of, one of my favorite titles and uh we start the podcast with a uh, the same question every single time and that was like what was the first gaming experience that uh, really hooked you when you were younger 
Yes. Uh, hello. Uh, I think I uh, thinking about this. I played a lot of games as a child and they were fun and I, I got really into that. But when I was at the beach, I was a teenager. I was at the beach with my family and we had a rainy, cloudy day. We went into town and I bought a board game called 1914 from Avalon Hill. It was like, I liked history and here's a game that talked about the first parts of World War One. It was a you know complicated game, not for everybody probably, but I found it intriguing. And I, and I, after I played that and tried that by myself, I started looking for more of the games that they made. And that sort of got me on the path to becoming you know, eventually a game designer. You know, 15 to 16 years later, I'd actually go to work for that company. Yeah, Avalon Hill seemed um, really prolific in kind of uh, producing games. We've had a lot of people that have talked about them in the past and, um, you know, how it influenced them for gaming. Um, were you into a, other titles by them? And uh, were you reading many novels and stuff at the time? Well, like I said, I liked history. So, um, I think what was cool about those games is a, a, a history book would come with maps, usually, and it, it was a, a historical campaign or a battle book or something. And then the maps would be maybe on the inside covers. But what the games did was take those maps off the back covers and put markers on the map representing all the units. Then you would, instead of just reading about the battle, you could refight the battle and from the perspective of the two opponents, usually two, and learn much more about the situation, what they're dealing with and how factors like terrain or, or supplies or or reinforcements affected the situation. So I was really, it was just an add-on to the, an expansion of the learning experience that the book would normally give me. And so I found it very intriguing and I, and I kept looking for more. I bought many more of their games and uh, I ended up subscribing to a magazine, their magazine, The General, and then it was another magazine we published in New York City called Strategy Tactics Magazine, published the game every, uh, every, every, every issue, every six times a year. And that just, uh, all through college, that was a, that was like a, especially when I was home, not so much when I was away at school, but when I was home, that was something I did in the summer. Um, I, I just, I just got into it. I just really enjoyed that aspect of making history come alive a little more. And if you think about those concepts, like, you know, magazine culture, kind of add-ons to games, uh, you know, re replay replayability factor and, uh, stuff like that, it actually really works with uh, modern gaming and it's kind of like that model's um, moved on a bit. Yeah, it's certainly a technology change. You know, there was no, there were no computer games in the 60s when I was doing that. And, and um, yeah, it, it, computer games just came, came along somewhat later for sure. And it's been an incredible expansion of the possibilities of computer games. Well, uh, grad, school, uh, grad school, you're in a, a war game club as well. And um, I was just wondering how important was like that multiplayer aspect and uh, the gaming community to you back then? Well, it was great to have people to play games with. I didn't really have a, a get, get people to play with. Uh, I didn't know that there was communities or groups that played board games at the time. Uh, when I got to the University of Virginia, um, I, I, uh, they had a game club that met on Friday nights and I started showing up and it was like people from town undergraduates, graduate students, college, you know, faculty were all mixed into this group, you know, all ages and, and all different kinds of games were played. We certainly, there were a group of some of us who played those more, uh, uh, uh hardcore war games, but there was a D and D had started. So there was a D and D group playing Dungeons and Dragons. There were, and what I, what I found particularly interesting was that we started playing more social multiplayer games, you know, before Settlers of Catan, but of that style of game, I remember a game called Titan. We played quite a bit, and I enjoyed. I found I really enjoyed the social aspect, and I enjoyed the games. Not, I, I could play and enjoy the more, you know, more strict hardcore games like maybe one on one, 
But I also found that I really enjoyed playing the multiplayer games with a bunch of people or three or four or five people. And the social aspect of that, it became, it was a really a fun experience, not just the challenge of learning about the historical situation presented by a game. And, and there was always a, a lot of personality that was put into the games as well. Like, um, I, I remember seeing like some, you know, a good dungeon master would make a, a, a kind of gripping game and stuff. Did you start adding like different concepts and, uh, ideas into your games? I was more, when it came to RPG role-playing games, I was more a player. I, I didn't take an active role as a, uh, as a dungeon master. Uh, we had really good ones. And no, uh, what this is a, I don't know if you knew the story, but one of the, one of the dungeon masters was, uh, on his way to the, to the West Point military academy to teach history. And he, he took Dungeons and Dragons and started modifying it, turning into a Lord of the Rings, Middle Earth role-playing game. And we played that and that was, that was, that was cool because, uh, I didn't know the story behind D&D, but I knew the story of the Lord of the Rings. And so making the Lord of the, you know, Middle Earth come alive in a role-playing game was fun. And, uh, what happened is he graduated, finally went off to the military academy to teach. And one of the other fellows in the club took over as a game master. And he was very interested in that. He made beautiful maps and created adventures. And we eventually started within the game club, we started a company called Iron Crown Enterprises. And we wrote to the Tolkien family and we thought we had permission to make role-playing games based in Middle Earth. So for 20 years or so, Iron Crown Enterprises was publishing Middle Earth role-playing based on, uh, uh, you know, as a D&D competitor based in, in, in Middle Earth. And that was my first experience going to trade shows, should selling that's the, those products, writing. That was my first real game, ex- make, game making experience in a sense. It was, uh, writing and uh, helping with that, getting that started. So would that kind of be like coming up with the game concepts, uh, designing it from from scratch and, uh, you know, like, as you said, doing mapping and uh, art and related stuff around it? Was that like a kind of a industrial process that you guys had? Yeah, we had like you know, the president of the company, Pete Fallon, was really good at the maps and, the, and this stuff. And there was a couple other people really into the the culture, Middle Earth culture. I mean, I, I, I was on the edge of that. I mean, I liked, I read the Lord of the Rings in the sixties, early sixties, and, and I was very interested in this, you know, stories and stuff. I liked fantasy and science fiction stuff to read, but this, this was really up there. Like I was still a traditional historian player in, in many ways. And this was just one of the things I was involved in, but it was a business and I, I had some time on my hands and I started helping. I was very active helping them. I did a lot of writing in terms of editing and writing the rules, you know, it was more, not so much the creative aspect of it. I don't remember writing any adventures, for example. And then, uh, it, I had, I'm, I, I, the company that I wanted, the, the company that published strategy tactics magazine had that, you know, was looking for someone to come up there and help them. And, and by now I had met some of those guys at a trade show and, uh, and I'd already done some free work for them about civil war games that uh, I walked, uh, I went over to the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia and re- walked the battlefields and I looked at the, in the library at the university, I looked at the uh, official records of the civil war and read accounts of the battle. So I made them, I gave a lot of input on a game they were building and they, they recognized that and I had some other experience. So they offered me a job in New York and I thought that before I got a real job, you know, coming out of cool school, I would try to make a living in the game industry. And I actually went up to New York and worked there in downtown Manhattan for several months, making the kind of games that I, that first got me going. And that was like the 1914 game from Avalon Neal. I was actually working for Strategy and Tactics Magazine. And that was, you know, quite an adventure. Did you feel like 
you had to be very accurate with historical stuff, but uh, fantasy gave you a bit more kind of freedom and a bit more freedom of expression. I think at the time that was true. You know, you, you, I mean, that's why I did all that research in the library because I, I thought that they made some mistakes. The, the designer of the game had made some mistakes in terms of the order of battle, who was actually there and what actually happened and distances involved and the map was a little inaccurate. So at the time, you know, I thought, you know, I think it was important that the historic game anyway, game of history and a historical episode, you know, this, the starting points and the people acting should be, should be legitimate. You know, it should be accurate so that you have a good representation of the chant of the choices that were made by the, at the time what happened. If you start messing around with the map, you know, then you're not, you don't have an accurate situation. You're not going to, you're not going to really learn what happened or have faced the same decisions. So I thought accuracy in a historic game was important. I wasn't so much of a fantasy gamer, you know, other, other than I, I participated, I wasn't making those. And uh, so I didn't deal with the freedom that came with being in a fantasy world. Well, you mentioned you started working with uh, Avalon Hill and they were, they were really pioneers in, in, in that kind of area. What were some of your favorite titles and why? I, the SPI company in New York was essentially going out of business. They couldn't keep me. I was just an intern for three months. And so when I knew I wasn't keeping that job, I started writing to other companies that I knew. And Avalon did was one I wrote to, and uh, it took a while, but they finally had me in for an interview and offered me a job. And my first representative, my job there at first was to take games from a company. They'd also bought the inventory of a game company called Victory Games out of New York City or New York area. And they asked me to go through their library of products and, and what would I choose to remake in the Avalon Hill style. And after I'd been there a while, they, I was given the free, I, I, I would go out and find other games that I thought we should make. And uh, so I, I did uh, a game from Francis Tresham, uh, from you may know, in Great Britain. He did an, a railroad game called 1829, which I loved. And I got him to work on an 1830 game about American railroads. And I was responsible for that for Avalon Hill. I really liked that game. Uh, there was a game called Britannia that was about the early invasions of Great Britain, all the people that came into Britain. And, and that, that was published by someone else, but it was going out of print. And I talked to the company that getting that. Or maybe they just gave it to me. I don't remember how I got it, but I, I redid the Britannia the Tandy game for Avalon Hill. And, oh, there was a, there were several others like that. B-17, Queen of the Skies, uh, yeah, maybe another one. Can't remember all of them. But, uh, that was, that was part, after we got through the victory games, I had some freedom to work on other products and go find other games that we could redo or buy. Or I only invented a few games from scratch for Avalon Hill. One was the, we had a trivia game. There was a game, Trivia Pursuit was very popular. My, and our company wanted to do a trivia game. So we got together in a room and talked about all the, how we could remake a trivia game. And uh, we all presented, we went off to our offices and made a trivia game design real quick. And I came back and mine was selected as the one they would publish. And then uh, they just got questions, very difficult tri trivia questions from somebody that published as a trivial game. I remember that I did a game called, uh, I designed a game called Patton's Best about the fourth armored division that drove across world war France and into Europe. And, uh, that was, a, I did that as a solitaire game because I was, I was thinking by this time I need to get into computer games because I looked like the future. And I thought a solitaire game would help demonstrate my understanding of how to make a computer game. Cause they were pretty much all solitaire games at that time. Well, what was the first kind of example of a, a like a computer game that you uh, of a board game that turned into a computer game that you saw that really impressed you? And did you have any like experience of text adventures or, or titles like that? 
I played those. Yeah, we. I, I was part of a handful of friends that we would get together, and, uh, and and we were living in Baltimore at this time. And I think Friday night was game night at one friend's house. We and we played all. We played a lot of board games, and we played text adventures on on a, a lot. Uh, I think we had. I can't remember how we did it on a TV or something. I remember that. But we did a lot of those, um, and they were fun. Um, the one that captured my attention was called Pirates, was Sid Meier's Pirates. Because when I'm working in Baltimore for Avalon Hill, at, at some point in 1987, they asked me to move over to their computer game division, and I started helping them make computer games. They were all done out of house by individuals usually, and they, they'd send us the prototypes, and we'd work, and I'd have to make it work as a game some way. I mean, I remember the first PC game I worked on had four colors, you know, white, black, cyan, and magenta. Those are the four colors we had to work with. And I think it was a, I think it was a, a remake of a board game called Wooden Ships and Iron Man, if I remember correctly. And, uh, I remember I thought this was still the future and I was, I was interested in getting involved in this and, and, uh, but I was part of Avalon Hill. I wasn't part of Avalon Hill's computer game group, as I recall. And then, uh, I found out the friend of mine asked me to, suggested I play this pirates game. He had it on a, on an early game machine, a Commodore or something. And I got to, I went to his house, we played pirates and I said, wow, this is really cool. This, this was, I could, I thought right away, this is the future, you know, of a big part of the future of gaming is computer games like this. Cause it was a great story adventure. I really enjoyed playing it. And I find out that the company that made that is on the North side, not too far from where I was working already. It was in Baltimore, not too far away. So I started talking to them about a possibility of a job and, uh, it took a while in part and, uh, how I told them, you know, I said, look, you've got programmers and artists. You don't have anybody who's actually made games here. Yet. I mean, I sort of was pushing it, but, uh, eventually, eventually they had me over for an interview. They got to a point where they wanted more people and they had me for an interview and they offered me a job the next day. And I started working. That was when I started working for Microprose in, uh, in, in Hunt Valley, Maryland. I was wondering, had you any experience before with like programming or, or, you know, computer graphics or anything like that? No, no. I mean, I, I never learned how to program. It was not really an option when I was an undergraduate that I recall, or it wasn't something that interested me. So I think, you know, I, I'm an anomaly in a sense that I've been involved in the computer games now since 1987 and games in general since 1980, but I never was a programmer, but I think. You know, in this industry, there's a lot of specialties and, uh, and design is one of them, you know, and, uh, you don't have to program to be a designer. I mean, I, my view of the design, I think was explained by a friend named Greg Kostikian. He said in his view, our design was to imagine in our heads how the game is and you know, envision how the game is supposed to look and play on screen, what is supposed to be happening. And then we have to translate that vision to the people, explain that vision, communicate that vision that the people are actually going to make it, which will be the art team, programming team, the sound team, the sound effects team. And so we're the, we're the, uh, we're the holders of the vision and the communicators of the vision. And then we have to set a lot, there's a lot of writing involved or a lot of like uh, decision-making about what, what's the art style, what the, you know, the, the tech, the technology you're going to deal with, the, uh, the systems, how how resources are going to be gathered, how they're going to be spent, what you buy. There's an awful lot of other stuff. So there's plenty of room. The Age of Empires games, for example, might have had as many as, you know, half a dozen to 10 designers doing scenarios and things like that that didn't involve any programming. It was plenty of work. I, I think that's really interesting because that's like, um, you know, in the UK, we had a lot of people that were, you know, designing, creating, programming, doing the whole works on a, on a single game. And uh, for MicroProse, that must have been, 
quite pioneering to have you know um uh two designers that were that were actually there just for the kind of design role yeah we did have people whose job was just design and uh, uh, uh that was new i think it relatively new in the industry and we all we also had sid meyer who was uh, an old school guy who had done it all himself you know along the way but eventually we got to the point where we would support him. I was an assistant designer for him on several games. We had an art lead on Railroad Tycoon who did most of the art, you know, Sid didn't put together. And, uh, you know, we, and as the teams got for civilization, uh, we got, we got some more additional help in that regard. And then of course, now I'm working with uh, a studio here in Texas. Uh, I just retired from it. They, yeah, they got like, you know dozen artists on our project and a dozen programmers on our project and, and, uh, you know, we're getting, so we have a sound engineer, you know, so there's much bigger teams. Of course, that's, we're, 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 we're overwhelmed by some of these te- other teams in the country that have hundreds of people making games, 50 programmers, 50 artists on a game, you know? So I, I transitioned from the day when it was like one guy did it all to now we have hundreds doing a product. Yeah, I was, I was going to say with a uh, railroad tycoon as well, that, that must've been a, a direct influence from uh, uh, 1830 uh, railroads and uh, robber barons and uh, yeah. what you mentioned earlier. Um, w- was it and uh, was it kind of influenced by those older board game titles and um, why did kind of railroads uh, fascinate you? Okay, so let's be clear. I mean, Sid Meier was the designer and programmer in uh, 1830. I was his assistant. And I, I, we did play the railroad game that I'd worked on 1830. We played 1829 as well. We might have played other railroad games at the time. I swear I had a collection of railroad games. I was interested in railroad. So I think he was inspired by those games. But what, what really inspired him was that he loved trains, model trains as a child. He grew up in, he was born in Switzerland, grew up there. And he came to the U.S. early on. But he, he's, he had a model train for Christmas and stuff like that. And he, and his vision was making, I think it wasn't making 1830 come alive. It was making sort of like the railroad, the model railroad come alive. I mean, he went off on a vacation. I remember this. And he came back after two weeks at the beach somewhere. And he had a prototype for a railroad tycoon. And uh, he asked me to play it. And uh, we talked about it. And uh, we, we messed around with that for uh, maybe a week or a couple of a month or so. Kept changing it, adding in, you know, the different, different aspects of the game. Picking up Fargo's, building up towns, building up industries. And we had, we went off for a lunch, you know, it was really funny. He and I went together to lunch up near uh, the shopping mall near our office. He says, well, I want to stop working on this spy game and start working on the railroad game. What do you think of that idea? I mean, what do you think of stop? And I said, absolutely. The railroad game is so exciting. I'm really excited about it. I, I, the spy game is fine, but this is the one I really like to work on. So that was the decision. We went back to the office and they told management that we're going to do this railroad game and maybe not the spy game right for a while. And, uh. He was in a position where he could make that decision. And so we worked on Railroad Tycoon until it was done. That's great that, you, that they kind of had the confidence to do that and also, you know, take you guys up on it. I, I was wondering as well, like board games as well, they had huge documentation and booklets with them and uh, Railroad Tycoon did as well. And it, that kind of related to history and built up a narrative. Was that really important in those titles? I thought it was. I mean, I thought it was a nice grounding in the... In the well, we wanted to build a railroad game, so well, we, you know, so we it, and we had one of the themes in the game was that the, the railroads would evolve. You know, they, it wasn't you would go through time, and that steam engines would turn into diesel engines, and the, you know, the industries would change a little bit. And, and so, um, one of my jobs was to research the uh, evolution of the steam engine and and pick pick this you know pick particular engines that would appear in the game. 
uh, you know, and uh, that, that was fun. Years later, I got to go to the York Railway Museum in, in New York, England, and I got to see some of the locomotives that I'd actually chosen to be in the game. I also got to do the maps, and so I, it was my job, so I got to pick the towns. My grandfather's hometown is in Elkhart, Indiana. That's on the map, whereas a bigger city nearby, South Bend, is not. You know, So I got to do that kind of stuff. And I had to pick, you know, a, a map, build the maps, and, uh, you know, it was, it was fun. I mean, I read tons about the origins. I'd already read a lot about the origins of railroading when I was doing 1830 in America. So, uh, it, this just built on that research. I'd already had a library of books that I acquired or, or could refer to. And, uh, it all, it all came together. We did a, we did two trips doing railroad to come. We went to the, a railroad museum in Pennsylvania and rode a steam engine, went to their museum, looked at stuff. And that was Sid and Max Remington, the artist and myself, the three of us went there, spent the day there looking at railroad stuff. Then we went to Washington DC, went to the national, uh, went to the Smithsonian institution and Went to a train store and, and, uh, we had, we did another field, we did two field trips where we just immersed ourselves in railroading. And that was uh, unusual for a game design group, but that was really fun and got, got our juices going for let's get this project going. You know, that was fun. Yeah. I, 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 that sounds amazing going on, on a, on a railroad kind of trip. Um, I, I think that manuals and stuff nowadays, you know, you get a PDF or you get a, a walkthrough or a guide and. It was a whole extra part of immersion uh, with the games then and uh, an extra element that seems to have kind of uh, disappeared off. Um, do, do you think we'll start to see more manuals in like modern games again or, or an attempt? I, my guess is no. You know, it's much easier to, that's an expense, you know, to, to, to write it and to have it printed. I mean, I remember I wrote those manuals, the manuals for those games, uh, Railroad Tycoon, Civilization, and uh, the other game, a couple other games. So, I, you know, that was work. And then we had to work with somebody in-house to get them printed and uh, laid out. You know, I mean, I was working at Avalon Hill. I laid out those books, my, those manuals myself. I wrote a lot of manuals and I'd write the copy on the back of the box, you know, the advertising copy. At least somebody got to do that professionally for, for microprose, but I was doing it for Avalon Hill. But, you know, that was a, a lot of expense that uh, you can, you can, you can get rid of the staff down the hallway who's, printing and, and, or not printing, but laying out the printing and sending it off to the printer by doing it all electronically. I think that's gotta be true. I, I, I don't think that people, I don't know, the, the marketing people, the salespeople, I guess they made a decision that the, the expense of making those manuals that we used to write are not worth whatever they bring to the product. So I think that those are gone uh, in our lifetime. Yeah. Maybe, maybe only in like special editions or something like that. I think, I think there's another factor involved here, and that is that the, the fans that really like your game will do that on their own to some extent. I mean, I know when we really, we were building games later on that there was a lot of opportunity to mod your game, build your own scenarios or campaigns, and then people love doing that, and it added an incredible amount of added value to the product you bought, and you could download all this extra, extra information and value from people who just got excited about the game, and that did, added some work for you. Well, you mentioned their civilization, and uh, it's it's one of my absolute favorite titles. I, I was wondering, um, what was it like when you first saw a kind of running demo of Civilization and uh, really got the concept? Yes, I remember exactly. I mean, I was May of 1990, and uh, the way Sid and I would work, uh, I worked for him, is that he would give me a version of a game, and I'd play it for a while, and then we'd go down, I'd go down to his office, and we'd sit there sometimes for hours 
and we hear play on screen. We talk about it. We make, you know, what we like, what we didn't like, what, what would be cool to add here and that kind of stuff. It was a very iterative process. And, uh, one day, you know, we talked about, we had played a board game called Civilization. We played another game called Empire Deluxe. And at one point he says, what would you change about Empire Deluxe? Give me a list of 10 things you would change about Empire Deluxe if we were going to rebuild that game. And I, I sat down and I thought about it for a while. I actually gave him, if I remember, I gave him like 12 things that would change, trying to be a, you know, be a star. And uh, so we talked about it quite a bit and he would prototype. He always had a handful of prototypes on his machine that he was fooling around with. And then one day in May of 1990, he gave me a floppy disk and he says, try this. This is a, this might be our civilization game. And, uh, I saved that discs, you know, I, for years I had that in my, in my stuff. And I finally, yeah, I thought I was going to donate it to a museum and, he, and Sid asked me to have it back. So I gave it back to him and he got it going again. It was not, it was not a turn-based game. It was real time. It was more set in ancient times or, or pre, you know, like prehistoric times. And, you know, it was more time in that period as I recall. And I mean, I knew right away, I said, well, this is really cool. You know, we're going to, this is going to be great. You know, I just, I was just very impressed. And from that day on. We started working on civilization a little bit, but what happened was the manager of the company wanted that spy game that we had never finished. And they told me I could not work on civilization or railroad tycoon two or whatever until we finished that spy game. And so Sid reluctantly said, okay, let's finish the spy game. We got that done. And then we were, we were given permission to go to a full blast on civilization. Every day I would get a version and I'd play it. And then we'd sit down and talk about it for a couple hours and then he'd get a new version going. And we played some more. And that was, that went on day after day, after day, after day. He wouldn't let anybody else play it except me for a lot for months. And guys were coming in my office or friends, you know, girls and guys were coming in and say, what is going on with this game? And they were all interested. They watched me play or they watched, they talked to Sid about it. He wouldn't let anybody else play. He just wanted to keep it tight. You know, he didn't want to have a lot of feedback that he didn't want to deal with. So he relied on me to be there, everybody. And my tastes were like, you know, good enough for him. And. And then finally he said, okay, we're making this game. This is going to be the thing. And by then I knew we really had a special game on our hands. So I was thinking I'm sitting in a studio or little office in North Baltimore, Maryland, and I'm, I'm working on a game that's going to blow people away. I think it's really going to be great. I, I think one of the amazing things about civilization is, as, as we mentioned before, uh, replayability and uh, the fact that, you know, you could generate those landscapes, but also you could play as any combination of a civilization and uh you could kind of choose the path of of the way you wanted to play um was uh was that a a massively deliberate move and also did anybody kind of think oh that will affect sales like um i don't remember anybody worrying about sales i mean uh i know one of my one of my friends still a friend today he's got his own game company now as a salesman glenn drover Mosaic games or forbidden games. And he, he, he kept it every time he was in a meeting, he came to meetings out of, he was out of town. He come in and said, oh, I got to see this game. Tell me what's going on. He was so fascinated with it. I, I mean, I think everybody embraced the idea that there was different cultures in the game that, uh, they were all, they played maybe a little differently. Those were things we borrowed when we started doing, uh, age of empires, you know, we wanted different cultures. We wanted them to be a little bit unique have special, special power that only they had, you know, and people would get their favorites and want to play only as that person. Uh, I think that was deliberate and I think it was a very positive thing. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a great move and they've still kind of stayed on till this day in, in, in all of those kind of strategy games. Um, I was wondering, were there any features of civilization that you would have uh, liked to see or anything that got removed before the uh, final version? 
Oh gosh, you know, we're talking thirty years ago, um, at least. You know, there's, there's been so many versions of civilization that have come out now. I think it's in a sixth edition, right? I, you know, I think we made some mistakes in the first game. There was ways to cheat that we were discovered later, and and uh, that had to be fixed. But uh, uh, we didn't. I think it was a mis- in a sense. I think it was a mistake that Ali was the only playtester for so long. And I, I learned from that. I drew away the lesson that we need to play our games a lot. And uh, everywhere I've worked since, when we started Ensemble, it was it, it was like mandatory. Everybody in the company has to play, and uh, at least once a week. And uh, we had eventually we hired full time testers for age two, and we we tried to hire some of the best players in the company. We're very good players. We had extent, you know, that they were willing to do that and work for us to play. And that that I think made a difference in our games. You know, being a higher quality the first time out of the box, and and uh, I took a lesson right away that we did. He, we, we, I don't think we played the first version of Civilization or not. Um, you you then moved into doing strategy guides as well, and um, I, I guess that wasn't a massive industry at the time, but um, now you look at it, and the strategy guides are huge, and tips and techniques, and uh, you know, even the best way of kind of speed speed running a game. Um, what kind of experiences did you learn doing that? But that was my, I got married and my wife was uh, an executive in the banking industry and she was offered a really great job in the Chicago area, making a lot more money than a game designer at, at Microprose. So well, we had to go, we had just had to do it. And, uh, so I left the company and after like almost five years and I didn't know what I was going to do, but people had written strategy guides about railroad tycoon, I think, and certainly civilization. So I wrote to the company, I, I met their writers and stuff and I talked with the company, I said, I'm looking for something to do, you know, when I'm going to move to the Midwest. And, and I said, would you consider having me write some of these books? And they said, absolutely. We'd love to have a guy who would actually make games, write these books. So they gave me a contract to write so many books. And I, I did, I think I ended up doing six, five or six books for different games, including the colonization uh, book for the Brian Reynolds did a game called colonization about the, uh, come out of the civilization universe. And, and the, that was an interesting experience. I liked, I learned a lot writing and that was very useful. It's funny for a guy who didn't, who took science in college because he didn't want to write paper and ended up writing six, five or six books. And then something else came along and I, and I, and I got involved with Tony Goodman down in uh, Dallas making games. And there's a story there if you want to hear it, but I haven't gone back to writing books. It was, it was experience. I learned a little bit about writing, but I didn't learn. I don't think I learned much, a lot about new about games. I love that you uh, mentioned colonization as well, because I was, I was absolutely hooked to that title. Um, really interesting one, that book. Yeah, working on that book was fun because I knew everybody working on it. They were all my ex-colleagues. So I was involved in the process. All I, That book was written as the game was made. It wasn't written after the game was made. It was written during the making of the game. So I could, I had I had more insight about the decisions were made because I was involved when they were making those playing the game, giving feedback and myself as it was developed. So that was a really sweet spot to be for a guy who was going to write a book about how to play the game. I've been playing it since it was a concept. Well, in 1995, you uh, co-founded Ensemble Studios, and um, that was with a, a good school friend, um, Tony Goodman. Um, what was it like kind of re-entering the industry with all the technological changes that had happened? It wasn't that big a change because I had been, like, I'm writing these books. I'd stayed connected to the game industry. I was playing, like I said, I had to write about four or five games. So, how I many I can't remember now, but like, so I was getting software, dealing with game developers. So, I was, I was sort of in the game industry, but on the periphery. I wasn't 
yeah, making them, but I was still seeing the changes. You know, I had to buy, I had to buy a pretty good computer to play them on. And, uh, uh, you know, I kept, I kept in touch. And then Tony Goodman was the president of Ensemble. He had been a kid at, uh, in the game club at UVA way back back. And his father was on the faculty at the university and he and his brother, Rick, were in the game club. And I guess I, I made an impression on him and he knew what I was doing. He knew I'd gone into the game industry and he, he called me up out of nowhere in, uh, 94 or 95 and started talking about what's involved in making computer games. Cause. I've got a business here that's got a lot of programmers and they want to make computer games and I'm thinking about doing it. And finally, he asked me to come down and meet him. And, uh, I mean, I wasn't a founder of the studio. I was like employee number four, but I, you know, it was, it was started by Tony and his, and his business partners. I was, I was an employee, but I was one of the first. Well, what was the difference in culture in Ensemble compared to, uh, you know, Microprose? Well, I think the cultures were pretty similar. Everybody, everybody was passionate about making games and I loved the idea and, uh, was really into them and was excited about what their job was, you know, got really interested in the, the projects we were making. Um, you know, Ensemble was not, I mean, Microprose was a full scale production company. I mean, they did everything soup to nuts. You know, you, we made the game at one end of the building and they were sold and, uh, and marketed down the other end of the building. So every, every step in the process of from customer, from concept to customer was in that building. Whereas Ensemble was just a, a development studio. Uh, we, we had to find a partner to publish our game. We, we, we were, the, we were the, you know, the game experts, we were building the software, but we needed it. We needed, we needed marketing and publishing and, and everything to come from some other source. And eventually we needed to get financing from other source and you know, Microprose was self-sufficient. We could, we, we were, we were. You know, Tony put up the money, his other company and he and his partners put up the money to keep us going for a while. But to finish that game, we were going to need a publisher who was going to help pay the bills. And so that was a little different experience. Well, where did the concept of, uh, Age of Empires come from? One of the, one of the other employees, I think ahead of me, Tim Dean, and he was number two or three. He was a big gamer. He played tons of games and, uh, I think he had actually worked in a game company for a brief, brief period or, and, uh, he brought in the Warcraft one day to the office and he said, you know, this game is really cool. It's doing great. And we should be doing something like this. Cause our first ensemble studio concept was not Age of Empires it was something else. And we took a look at that and we played a bunch of it, played a lot of Warcraft. Everybody bought Warcraft and played it and maybe Command and Conquer as well. And then, uh, the idea came to us cause, uh, Rick Goodman, his brother and Brian Sullivan, uh, they were. The, they were, they were designers as well, became designers as well. And we all had, we loved the historical games. We all came from that area, area of board games, historical games. So the idea came together. The vision was let's take, let's take the technology of a real a real time strategy, like Warcraft and command and conquer and merge it with the economics and historical stuff of civilization, bring and create a, an RP a role-playing game based in uh, a historical co context. And so that was the vision for Age of Empires. It was originally called Dawn of Man. That was our name for it when we started take, going around the country trying to find a publisher. Yeah, like real-time strategy had, it, it was out there before, but it really kind of kicked off with the, you know, the power increasing on the computers and uh, titles like Command and Conquer and Warcraft. Uh, was it was it challenging to kind of, you know, have a, have a full society and implement that at the time and have it all running fast and herb? Uh, you know, did you have to cut back on some elements? Uh, I don't remember. I don't remember cutting back on, I mean, I'm sure we did because we saved ideas for age two. It, you know, we, 
at some point, you know, I tell people making games is kind of like making sausage, you know, at some point you gotta stop making it and start selling it, you know, uh, you know, you gotta, you gotta tie off the sausage and put it in the marketplace. And, uh, I think we look back, I mean, we had, we had a sit down after the game was published. It was, it did better than we ever, ever hoped. And we want to know what we did right. What was a super sauce? What do we do correct? Cause we need to make that happen. You gotta do this again. And we talked about why we think age was so successful. And one of the, one of the simple reasons was when, uh, there was like 50 some real time strategy games in development in 1997, and then one of the magazines in America published this article and listed all these games and of those 50 some games. Every one was either based in science fiction or fantasy following in Warcraft or command and Conquer, except one. And that was age of empires. We had chosen a historic topic for our game. You know, the early civilizations first civilizations on Earth, and it, it made us really stand out. We were really different from everything else. And, uh, and another exercise we did, I don't know what how long I'm going to talk about this, but we sat down in a room one day and I said, let's make a list of all the things that Warcraft is doing right and great. Why it's good. Why command and Conquer is really good. What has got civilization, what the civilization was doing, it was really great. And then we'll make a list over here of things they're not doing. And so the first couple of columns were the things we've got to be as good as they are at. And the fourth column was our opportunities is where we distinguish our game and make it different. And so people are not playing the same game. They're playing something new. And being based in history was a big part of that. And making it sunshine, our game, instead of a dark, forbidding planet was part of that. And, uh, you know, cheating an AI that didn't cheat and uh, randomly generated maps. Those are some of the features so that we didn't take the other games were really doing or doing well and that we could, they could distinguish our game and make it, make it stand out. And, um, you, you added a, a female character into Age of the Empires 2 as well, because it seemed to, uh, really appeal to female players. Also, the AI was improved. Uh, what, what, what kind of other improvements were you aiming for? Well, I wanted, like I said earlier, I wanted a non-cheating AI. I pushed for that. And, uh. Uh, I, I thought that would make a better game and I randomly generated maps would make it replayable. You know, I wanted, I wanted it endlessly replayable. We started, we had all these, we had these, uh, single player campaigns. So it turns out we gave, we gave the players like an incredible number of opportunities. I mean, I, I would say, uh, maybe I said this later about age two, but I, I would say that I wanted the, the, the most, uh, uh, smartest 15 year old kid, boy or girl in junior high to say, this is my favorite game, play it at a high level. But that would inspire other boys and girls in class to try the game as well. And they would, they could play it differently, but they would all get their money's worth, you know? And, and I find out my friend talked talk about playing with his daughter and, uh, they could play it very simply with a very low, a low, well, the difficulties of AI, you could set it like, I can't lose, which would make it fun for a child to play versus, or a young person to play with their dad or mom. And then you could play it really hard. And, uh, uh, you know, so that would be a challenge for a super player. So we provided an awful lot of different, different ways to play that game, which would reach out to a broader audience instead of just a hardcore audience or a casual audience. The different audiences of computer games around the world could find a way to play that game, get their money worth and joy and tell their friends, I really like this game. You should try it. That's what we were shooting for. Do you think the, uh, historical accuracy and, uh, kind of help ed educate people about history as well. Like uh, I know I certainly learned some stuff from civilization. Well, I think historical accuracy is a little strong. I mean, I remember reading an article or seeing an article in a history magazine and said, you know, the history in this game was crazy. It's nothing like real. There's hardly anybody on the earth who's ever heard of a Hittites, Hittites, if they haven't read the Bible or something. And here are the Hittites are a, are a team you can play in this game. So 
I think an overall, the, his, the history people were, were enthusiastic because it introduced people to history. And then as the years went by, we would get these letters from people saying, my son was a pretty average student, but then he started playing Age of Empires. And now he's going to the library and getting books about the Roman Empire and, and this and that and the other thing. And, and, and I'm sure I know that my friends are, at Microsoft were, were very happy with that. I mean, this was software, you know, doing its thing, educating as well as entertaining. And I think they, they got a big kick out of the fact that their game was, you know, encouraging young people to go learn more about some historic episodes. So our game inter was an introduction. Yeah, we, we, we borrowed from history, the things that would make a good game. We left out things like, uh, slavery and, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh religion because we didn't want to be controversial. We wanted to be the, the black plague would not be in H2, for example, but we wanted, we wanted, uh, an entertaining thing that was, that would be, a, you know, introduce you to this stuff. I mean, we used to do our research. I remember telling people I did a research in the children's section of the library because it was more generally understood and recognized. They had lots of pictures, which would help us make art. You know, I think when Sid made, made a speech or a comment years ago that I remember just that this, the player should have the fun, not the designer, not the artist, not the historian. You know, we wanted the players to have the fun. I was, I was wondering, was there ever a time period uh, that, you, that you would have liked to have done uh, Age of the Empires uh, 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 kind of title on? I, um, I always thought a Western kind of uh, would be a pretty interesting one. Oh, we certainly talked about that kind of stuff. But, you know, those games were big and they took a while to make. Age one, the first age took almost, you know, three years to make, maybe two and a half. And age two took a couple. Age three took several. We, we, we redid, we did, redid the city in Age of Empires three, like a dozen times. The home city trying to get it to work the way we liked. We spent a lot of time with formations trying to make those work and never got them to work. And so, but we talked about going forward in time. We, you know, if, if the company had stayed together and we'd found enough people enthusiastic after three age games and age of mythology and a bunch of expansion packs, the guys were a little tired of that. We wanted, we had other guys, I had game ideas in the works. And Microsoft decided they wanted us to, basically they wanted us to give up our jobs until they could do Xbox games. They didn't think we could do an Xbox game to their quality or something like that. Anyway, uh, uh, we were talked about the next iteration where it might have been uh, World War One or something. Um, I mean, I, you know, H2 was a, a massive game. You know, it was a great period to do a game about, you know, knights, and castles and all that kind of stuff. It's perfect. And, uh, you know, H2, H3 was we we're getting into gunpowder and long-range weapons, and it was more of a challenge. So as the, as the weaponry got longer range, it becomes more of an issue, but it's, it's been resolved. I think people have done pretty good games in a more modern situation. Well, I thought um, Age of Mythology as well was great. Um, it must have been fun kind of having those, uh, you know, mythical gods and uh, creatures added in there and all those crazy powers that they could have. Yeah, that was a lot, that was like a break. You know, we, after age two, I think we felt that our people really needed a break from those, those, the limitations of a historical game. Even though we, we, we play fast and loose with history to make a good game, we, we, uh, we, we did feel constrained. So, uh, mythology opened up an awful lot of stuff for us, you know, these gods and powers yeah. and, uh, you know, mythological creatures. And so it was a lot more fun for, yeah, artists and, uh, you know, and musicians and, 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 and I think it was a lot, it was a nice break from the age story and, uh, it was, it turns out to be, it's funny. I've run, I keep running into people who say that actually age of mythology is the favorite game we made. Yeah. It, it, it seems really kind of fun. Uh, that one does. And, uh, I always like those kind of, um, 
you know, God, some mythology in there as well. Um, I was wondering, have you kept any of your old um, board games from back in the days that you had? I do, yeah. Actually, it's like I'm getting to be an older man now. You know, when it, I'm in my 70s and I've got a basement with lots of games that are I'm deciding what to do with them. I, I, I'm probably going to try and sell them on eBay, or I guess like there's some shops that would buy them all probably. But I do have hundreds of games, hundreds of board games. They just accumulate them. I was a collector. I collected railroad games a little bit. I collected old games I really liked. You know, I've still got some classic old games. I don't know what they would do with them, really. I was, I was wondering, what, what was one of your kind of favorite memories of your career then? Um, I remember, I remember the first day we could play Age of the first AOE on. We would play. We would work all day. I wasn't. I was. I was living in Chicago. I, I don't. I. I was come down to Dallas like months and months for a week to work. I was only working part time for most of Age of Empires one. And uh, I remember uh, we would play Warcraft in the afternoon. We could take a break and play Warcraft for an hour just to keep the juices flowing. And then we got to the point where I was pushing very hard to get a prototype of Age of Empires together so we could play it ourselves online. And I remember I was in the office and we played an eight-player game of Age of Empires for the first time. And and we played the game to conclusion. It worked, you know, smoothly, you know, whatever. And everybody got out of their chair, ran down the hall. We were all cheering. That, that, that sounds awesome. Um, well, Bruce, it's been absolutely amazing. And I, I just want to ask him, um, what what are you up to nowadays? Well, as of June thirtieth, I retired. I've been working for a, a small studio in in Texas. It's like a third gener. It's like third studio. I work along a thirty mile stretch of a highway north of Dallas, Texas. It's founded by guys I work with. One of them, Dave Bonger, is the president. He and I he joined Ensemble in nineteen ninety six. So I've worked with him at three companies over the last what what like 26 years and he's a good friend and i i i, I didn't want to work full-time i i just wanted to work i offered to help him you know a little bit if he could use some help so i've been here for since like 2015 on a pretty much part-time basis we've built a bunch of games See, some of our games you can play on netflix we did stranger things games that are available on netflix i believe and and it's been a struggle because we it's, we've always had to find financing and, and several projects were stopped two thirds of the way through because the financing stopped, the company was paying for the game, couldn't finish. And we're, you know, we're working on a game now. We think it's going to be cool, but we can't talk about it. And even though I'm retired, I, I still play it and still sit in some meetings once in a while. But uh, I'm actually I'm retired. I'm like doing genealogy research. My wife and I are going to uh, buy a second, we bought a second house to get out of the winter weather and uh, working on that, trying to get more exercise and read more playing games less awesome Bruce well it's been amazing thank you so much for joining us my pleasure my pleasure